Well, amen. It is uh, very good for me to be here with you this morning. It's a joy. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John. We're continuing our study that we just started recently, and uh, we will be in John 1.14, this glorious verse here, John 1.14. I'll read our verse twice. Grace Church and friends, hear the word of the living God, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Second time, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, let's ask God now to help us. Let's pray together. Father, we join our hearts again with the psalmist. And we ask, we, we know not really what we ask. And so we're thankful for the Spirit who intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We, we pray very simply, but understand the depth of the prayer, revive us according to your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would revive us according to your word for the joy of your people and the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin this morning in John 1.14, I want to read for us again John's purpose statement found in John 20, verse 31. This is the passage that our brother Rick, our pastor, preached a while back. This is the why that this narrative, this book, was written by John. He says there, but these have been written, all of this has been written so that purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. So looming over us each week are those words. John, the evangelist, wants us to know who we are to treasure. Who we are treasuring or who we are to believe in. He, he wants us to know the real Jesus and to have life in his name. It's the one we sang about. Jesus, lover of my soul. Let me to thy bosom fly. He wants us to have life in his name, everlasting life. He wants us to cling to him because he knows that Christ is the all-sufficient one. He's the only one we have. He wants us to be amazed by the gospel. That's who John wants his readers to know. To know in a John 17, 3 way, you know the passage, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Not just doctrine, not just words on a page. Those, those will damn you. We do not put faith into words on a page. John wants you to know the person. Jesus, the one who brings you to the only true God. The kind of knowing that we read about later in the New Testament 
More than that, I count all things to be in loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Those are Paul's words in Philippians 3. That's what John wants for his readers. And that's my prayer for us today, that we would know him as he is revealed. So as we turn our attention to John chapter 1, verse 14, I want us to ask, what does this passage say about Jesus? What does this passage tell us about him? What does John want us, what does he want his readers to know about him? Well, with that in mind, we're going to consider three things in John 1.14. We find them right in the passage and we'll take them one by one. Three considerations. Number one, the word became flesh. Number two, the word dwelt among us. And number three, the word manifested God's glory. So we have the word became flesh, incarnation, The Word dwelt among us, tabernacle, and the Word manifested God's glory, that wonderful Word, glory. Well, first, let's consider what John says first. And the Word became flesh. It's a glorious passage. If you spend any time in it, you you feel the weight of it. It's small in its presentation by words. There's not many, but it's, it's like a bottomless body of water. The deeper you go, the deeper you find that you have to go still. For in it, we see something marvelous, something majestic, something full of mystery. Ultimately, that the one true God steps out of heaven and clothes himself in humanity to save sinners from their sin. Here we come in contact, John's view of the incarnation or the infleshing of the eternal God. Now we know in other accounts, Matthew and Luke, they note for us in in amazing detail the incarnation. On ground level, as it were, we see Mary and gold, frankincense and myrrh and wise men and stables and angels. But here John's perspective is seemingly uh, 30,000 foot eternal view where he highlights the centrality of Jesus in salvation history, this eternal Son. So though he's not on the ground yet, and he'll get there in verse 19 where his narrative continues after verse 18, the prologue's finished, he still, his language in verse 14 is so rich. The Word became flesh. Now John is also taking us back to chapter 1, verse 1 that has already been preached But he's reminding us of this word, word. This is the first time since that verse that he's used that word. And after verse 14, he won't use it again. In the beginning was the word, John says, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Well, who is, who's the word? Well, we know that he was in the beginning with God. And we know the word is God. The Word served as an agent in God's creation. The Word created. The Word is God's self-expression. The Word is eternal, pre-existent. As we learned several weeks ago, John's really taking us back to Genesis 1 in the creation narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did He do that? By speaking words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is telling us again, a little bit by way of review, he wants us to see an interconnectedness between God and this 
word. We also learn from John words in verses 4 and 5 that the word is the fountain of life and light. So who is this eternal word? The one that John so meticulously speaks about and now says the word became flesh. Well, listen to this passage. I'm not going to give you the reference just yet because I believe you know it. But, but listen, as it were, with fresh ears importing everything from John 1 into this passage. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's the divine word, Jesus, the Son. Think about those verses. The prophet spoke the word. Jesus Christ is the word. The word now in verse 14, going back to John, is now embodied. God has chosen in Christ to make himself known in a very near, in a very physical way. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God's glory. We know from Colossians 2, verse 9, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Who is this eternal word robed in flesh? You know it. It's J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is preexistent. He's the sustainer. God stooped low in the person of Jesus. My favorite line in uh, the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald, and it might be my favorite. It's hard to do that, but my favorite line in any hymn, maybe the one, the best one ever written, I don't know, but you know it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity veiled in flesh pleased as man with men to dwell Jesus our Emmanuel what does Emmanuel mean it was prayed God with us well Jesus is the God man truly God truly man two natures divine and human in one person it is a wonderful mystery well our elder affirmation of faith for the church notes it this way. It's in Article 6. Pastor Jordan's walking you through and grow. I think you're in Article 3, so you will get there. But listen to the way that the elder affirmation of faith, what your elders believe about the incarnation. We believe that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his eternal son as Jesus, the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, We believe that when the eternal son became flesh, he took on a fully human nature so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion or mixture. Thus the person, Jesus Christ, was and is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. And the word became flesh. If you look further in the passage There's a relationship in the passage that begins to take on more detail. God the Son and God the Father. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Do you see him there? God the Son enjoying forever face-to-face fellowship with his Father. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit together in happy 
fellowship, the happiest fellowship, nearness, sufficient in themselves, not needing anything, joyful communion. And then we get that Isaiah passage where the son rendered himself as a guilt offering. Whatever that conversation was in eternity past, the eternal son happily submits to the father to go and rescue a people for his own possession. And the word became flesh. Why? To save sinners. To rescue sinners. Listen to Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's unfathomable. it's, It's the great mystery that God the Creator steps into his creation in flesh and blood and subjects himself to the frailty of humanity to save sinners. I mean, think about it. It's, 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 I say this not for shock value, but the, the Creator passed through His creature's own uterus. It's, it's mind-blowing in its scope. It's unfathomable. And yet for our rescue, it's our only hope. Christ must be truly God for us. And Christ must be truly man for us. We need a Savior that is a mediator, both God and man. We need a Savior who had the divine power to lay His life down and to take it up again. We need a Savior who merits us His righteousness, one who walked this earth in perfection. We need a high priest, the very one Rick spoke about in Hebrews 9, who offered Himself to God without blemish on our behalf. We need a Savior that lived the perfect life that we could not live, died the death that was due us, We need His divinity and His humanity. When He rose, we needed a Savior who was both man and God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us to Galatians 4, 4 through 6, us. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that, purpose, he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Have you thought much about his humanity? How he came to this earth and assumed human nature? How he experienced suffering and shame and misery? John tells us he walked, he spoke, he hungered, he thirsted, he wept, he cried tears from real tear ducts. Maybe some of you even wept this morning over something. Jesus wept. He slept, he prayed, he ate, he drank, he was exhausted, he sweated drops of blood, he felt pain, he was beaten, he was left by his friends, he was made fun of, and he was hung on a tree and he felt those nails go through those wrists. He breathed, and I don't know what this is like yet, but he breathed his last, it says, and he died. If you survey the Gospels, you'll find all those descriptions about him. That's not exhaustive. He was both God and man. Have you thought about the distance? Have you thought about his humanity? Have you thought about the distance, the the chasm that God traveled, as it were, coming to us? We can measure this room. We can get a tape measure and go from that wall and that wall. And we can come up with a footage. But the eternal son coming to this earth in humility, stooping low, to die for those he created? How do you... How do you measure that? 
Have you ever meditated on the distance? God, the high and exalted one, walking the streets of Jerusalem with dust getting between his toes. Or Micah 6.6, 6, he's called the God of heights, but in John 1, he's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. In Acts 17, he's the God who made the world and all things in it. He's not served by human hands, but this God was cradled and fed by his mother Mary as an infant, and he needed that. Some of you know the name Timothy Brindle. He is a hip-hop artist. Mo- more than that, he's a pastor now, I believe a counselor, but he wrote this poem, one of his songs. So powerful, the last phrase. He took a cosmic plunge. He's speaking about the humility of Christ. He took a cosmic plunge, put on some lungs, on the cross to God became a sponge to soak up his wrath so the wicked wouldn't be sifted and blown into chaff. Psalm chapter 1. So if you considered the distance, if you considered his love, it is love that marks that distance. There is nothing good in us, beloved. We are sinners. We can't save ourselves. We only deserve God's wrath. And he would be perfectly righteous to have snapped his fingers and kill us all for the way that we've trampled upon his glory. But God, but God, Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us up with him by the way the God man still now, good news, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that purpose in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you considered his love in his incarnation? That's why we sing, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Well, friends, maybe you're here today and you'd say, I don't know this Jesus. Maybe there's kids, teenagers. What about you? This verse speaks about God coming in flesh, Jesus, walking through this world, living a perfect life to be merited as righteousness to his people. He died on that cross, absorbed the wrath of God as we just read, as a wrath-satisfying propitiation. He was raised from the dead, sacrifice accepted. He was treated like You and I should have been treated on the cross. And Jesus says to you this morning, He bids you to come and die. He he bids you to come to Him and have eternal life, forgiveness of sin, a robe of righteousness. As we just read, to be raised up with Him. That's repentance and faith. That's, That's turning from your sin and throwing yourself, God have mercy upon me, a sinner, by faith on Christ alone. And he will have you. We get so numb to the incarnation, can't we? It was, it was prayed earlier. And we'll spend a season soon. It's coming. Considering an Advent is around the corner. But how does John 1.14 land on us today? Have you thought about it much this week? Have you thought about his infleshing very much? Have you pondered the phrase, the word became flesh? Have you, have you stared at it through different angles? 
and, and had your affection stirred by the implications of it in your life. I'm not talking about theological fat-headedness where we, we try to figure out how the DNA really got in there in the hypostatic union and put it under a microscope and how did it really happen? Are you in awe that Jesus is truly God and truly man and believe it because it's in this book and God says so? I remember going to an art museum in Washington, D.C. a while back on our trip and you've been there, you've seen pictures, people standing in front of those pictures and they're just staring at it for hours maybe, different angles, and you're looking at them, and you, 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 you're trying to figure out what they're actually looking at because you don't see it. They're looking at it to see another facet of beauty, perhaps a brush stroke. Something about that picture, something about that art is beautiful. Have you considered the incarnation that way? Where you just stare at it and stare at it. See, the incarnation is not just about a baby. If, if we don't have the incarnation, then there's no remission of sins because there's no shedding of blood. If we don't have the incarnation, there's no John one twenty nine. behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we don't have an incarnation, we don't have an atonement. We don't have wrath-satisfying sacrifice. We don't have Luke 4 if there's no incarnation, and we certainly don't have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So if you consider the incarnation, well, we've considered that phrase, and now number two, I want us to consider the word dwelt among us. The word dwelt among us. Not only did Jesus take on flesh and come to rescue sinners, he he also dwelt among us. I know those are inexplicably tied, but if we pull it out just to consider it, the, the verb dwelt, signifies that he, that he pitched his tent, or he tabernacled here. Our Lord came in flesh, but as John tells us now, and he will finish again with his narrative as he picks up in verse 19, Jesus lived. He tabernacled here. You see, John had opponents, likely Gnostic opponents, and they would say things like, sure, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God, but human? He he just appears to be human. It's unthinkable. A holy God coming to live with such sinful people and dwelling here, how does it not rub off on him? I remember using this illustration when I was in India uh, a few years ago, and uh, before I went, this is where I was discipled by Sister Asha and Sister Beulah on how to eat Indian food with with my hand and not a fork. I don't think they would care over there either, but I, but I wanted to learn how to do it. You may say, well, you just do it. But I, I never could do it very well. And I remember using this illustration over there in a sermon to the people. As much as I washed my hand from eating, I always found that it wasn't as clean as eating with a fork. And they're probably thinking now, I, I don't understand how you can't clean your hand. Um, but the point is, the illustration is, how, how does that not happen to God when he comes? Is, is, he not, is he not stained by our sinfulness, by coming? In some sense, there's, there's the debris of, of humanity in that sense. Well, John tells them plainly and clearly, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He, the world didn't stain him. Hebrews is very clear, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Well, John's listeners probably heard what you're thinking about now when you hear the word tabernacle. Perhaps that it would hearken them back to Exodus, the study we just finished in our teleos study. Perhaps Exodus 25 would have risen to the top of their hearts where God gives them very specific instructions on the tabernacle, what they were to build for him. In Exodus 25.8, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. This tabernacle, this portable tent of meeting in Exodus was ultimately for God to dwell among his people. Or maybe they would have thought of Exodus 40, verses 34 and following. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now we've noted already in this sermon that in past sermons as well, John seems to be transporting us back to Genesis, and namely, the early chapters of Genesis. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning was the Word, but might John also be taking us back to those early chapters in Genesis with this theme of the tabernacle? In their helpful book, God Dwells Among Us, G.K. Beale, some of you may have read it, I would encourage you to read it. He says this in chapter 1. Eden is presented as a sanctuary and place where God dwells. As seen in Genesis 1 and 2, in the wider witness of the Old Testament. Even the seemingly casual mention of God walking in the Garden of Eden is rich with connotations that suggest God's presence in the temple. So we have this theme then in the scriptures. The temple, tabernacle theme that runs through the Old Testament. We have it in Eden and then fast forwarding we have the temple. What happens in these places? God's presence dwells. His glory fills them. He reveals himself to his people. Well, if we just consider God's mission for a moment, just put on our theological hats for just a moment, a taste, and I would encourage you to go find the theme of the tabernacle and the temple and run it all the way through from the beginning to the end, but just consider it for a moment. If we go back to Eden and consider it briefly, Eden is a sanctuary. Adam and Eve were priests who were to guard the garden. That's where God's presence was. He walked with them. And His presence is life. Think about that. Nearness, communion, satisfaction, abundance. Think about the imagery in Eden with the, the garden and the tree and the greenery and the food. And there was a river of life there which abounds with God's presence and flows out of the garden outward towards where? The nations. Brings life to the nations. Now think about the tabernacle. We'll fast forward very quickly. The Holy of Holies, like Eden. The holy place, like the garden. And the outer court, like the outer world to the nations. So priests in the tabernacle guarded the tabernacle The tabernacle was a place of worship where God's glorious presence dwells, where living waters of life flow from and expand God's dwelling place and fill the earth where the nations are. It's just brief imagery to give you a taste, but it's in the background. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John is saying something better is here. It's no longer architectural or but physical, or, or as D.A. Carson 
notes in his commentary, the incarnate word is the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God among human beings. For the word became man. So God's presence comes near in the person of Jesus. He, Jesus is now the, the central focus of God's presence. In John chapter 2, a, a couple chapters later, in verse 19, what does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And, and, and they're thinking, no way. It, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So it's, it's no longer architectural, but human flesh. No longer a location on a map. No longer portable or temporary. It's the incarnate one, God with us. The, the tabernacles and the temples were all foreshadowing the substance. Jesus, the true temple. God has come now to dwell among his people. His presence, his glory, as it were, from on high now come very low and very close. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and you know the verse, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. He's the living water. In Ephesians 2, if we just keep thinking about this tabernacle theme, Ephesians 2, the Gentiles, that's you and I, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The nations. Not only has God come to dwell with us, but the Spirit dwells in us. And Ephesians 2 tells us we're being built together in a dwelling place for God. We're a kingdom of priests, like the line before us, to persevere in our priestly witness and protect the temple. We're to serve in holiness. Finally, to put an exclamation point on the tabernacle theme, in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, I saw no temple in it. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need for the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So from Eden all the way to the new Jerusalem, God's mission fulfilled. The earth is filled with his presence, the whole earth, all through the incarnate tabernacle, Jesus. Well, before we consider our last point, let's ask the question again. What does John want us to know about Jesus? Well, in Jesus, God is with us. God came to dwell with us in him. In the incarnation, God drew very near. He came very close. He's accessible. This is good news for us as we walk through this life for his people. He's not far off. How many of us walked in here today feeling like failures? Or, or maybe temptation over fill-in-the-blank is so heavy. Or maybe it's anxiety or panic or sorrow. May I just encourage you with the gospel truths that Jesus Christ, your Savior, is near. He is with you. And He bids you to come. Is it not comforting to know that our, our Savior, as we read the pages of John, and we will continue to do so, He walked with people here on earth and He healed them. He held dirty feet in his hands and washed them to give them a picture of what it meant to serve one another. He, he's not far from you. His love for you is everlasting. And you're a kingdom of priests, the Bible tells us. So you have access to the glorious presence of God. You are loved by him and we can draw near. In Jesus, we have intimate access to our God. In Jesus, God is not far away. Psalm 27. Let this one thing dominate your life 
pray it dominates mine. The psalmist says, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Do you hear the temple language? The priestly language? It's a preoccupation with the presence of God. Live here. He's near. He loves you. You have access. Isn't it wonderful that he prayed for us? John 17, 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. That's, that's where we're headed to see that glory face to face. I pray that we would all love and long to live in the presence of Christ. And the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. Well, third, the word manifested God's glory. The word manifested God's glory. It says, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we know by now that the word is none other than Jesus. And John says that they beheld his glory, the Son's glory, the Word's glory. And therefore, they've seen God's glory. We know that Jesus makes known the glory of God. His entire ministry was about displaying the glory of God. Well, what does that mean, seeing his glory? Well, certainly, based on the context, we would say that John at least wants them to think about the tabernacle glory that we just looked at. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, right? His presence, his radiance, his beauty, the beauty of God. That certainly seems to be on John's mind. But what about Jesus? Is is John saying that Jesus, like those paintings that we often see with the big glowing halo, had something like that? That that's what John beheld in his disciples? Well, we know that Isaiah tells us that Jesus wasn't much to look at. Tells us that he had no beauty or or majesty, that we should be attracted to him. But, But John says that they beheld his glory. He writes in John 2, verse 11, after the the, the miracle, or in the miracle, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In John 17, Jesus speaks of this glory again. As he prays, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Speaking of his cross death, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And at the end of that passage, in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Well, there was certainly glory witnessed in his messianic signs. That's what we see when we read this gospel and the others. As we think about glory in Jesus and the Father, the scriptures point us back to the gospel. All who he was and all he did was bound up in his work of redemption to the glory of God the Father. So so it's not an outward splendor, but the glory of his humility and weakness that culminates in the cross death. That's the glory. 2 Corinthians says something very specific, very similar. Chapter 4, verse 6, let light shine out of darkness. For the God who said, rather, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is gospel glory. A a supernatural glory. The glory that John saw bound up in Jesus. this, This glory that was revealed in the Son by the Father. This beautiful glory colored with grace and truth is, as one writer noted, a crucified glory. This is the glory that shines forth in his signs and ultimately, as we've said, finds its apex in the Son of God bringing his Father glory by giving himself as a ransom for many. Andreas Kostenberger is a theologian and he writes about this glory. He says, Hence, the thrust of Jesus' mission in its entirety is the revelation of God's glory. From the first sign in Cana, which we've mentioned, to the cross and the raising of the new temple, Jesus' body on the third day. The perfect revelation of God's love for the world at the self-humiliation and divine exaltation of the Son. The glory that John beheld is a gospel glory. Did he see things with his eyes? Of course he did. But this gospel glory ultimately finds its expression in Christ on the cross. Jesus was sent. That theme that runs through, he happily obeying his Father all the way to the cross. Jesus himself in John 12 said he would be lifted up. You can go back there and read it. Well, John must have seen something in the glory of Jesus in Isaiah because speaking in that same chapter, John says these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So John sees something in Isaiah about Jesus and his glory. And when Jesus talks about being lifted up in John 12, John writes about that. In Isaiah 6, you remember that? The, the whole earth is full of his glory the man of unclean lips, this glory, this gospel glory. Well, John also says here, is full of grace and truth. Certainly grace and truth, if you were to meditate on Jesus and his character, it would describe him. But many commentators, and I agree, note that in the original language, this grace and truth is is tied to glory. They modify glory. So it's, it's, Literally, the glory of God was full of grace and truth. It harkens us back to Exodus 33, when Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. What does God say? I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion The glory of God revealed in the Son was full of grace and truth, full of goodness and compassion and faithfulness. In Jesus, we have the greatest expression of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness, His steadfast love, His mercy. This is the glory that John and his friends ultimately saw in Jesus. Grace and truth was hung between two thieves. Isn't it wonderful that Christ did not come with a hammer? or the law, but he came with grace and truth. John saw Jesus with his eyes, but he received, as Tommy preached last week, Jesus by faith and was brought into the family of God by the new birth. If we go behind the scenes, verse 12, what about you? Have you beheld this glory? Have you seen it? Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Friend, that's good news again for you today if you'd say, I don't know Christ. 
this glory is full of grace and truth. This cross is grace to you. We've already said Christ came for sinners like us to bring us to God. To repent and believe. And it's really, that's, that's, that's really in all of this the question. Reception or rejection? If you reject Him, you're not just rejecting facts about Him. You're rejecting a relationship as of the only begotten from the Father. So repent and believe today. Well, as I close, what do we, what do, we do with all of this? As if we should even ask the question, my last encouragement to you and to my heart would be the word behold. To look. To look at Him. To look unto Him by faith. Consider Christ in His incarnation. Like the visitor to the museum that we talked about. Eyes intimately acquainted with that piece of art on the wall. Looking at every brush stroke. Or maybe looking at this angle. Or staring over here. Look again. From angle to angle to see the beauty of Christ in the incarnation and all of its implications for you. And delight, delight in it. Delight in the brushstrokes. Delight in the color. Delight in the shapes. Well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. This is how God has made Himself known. In the person of Jesus Christ the incarnate tabernacle. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that your Son has come to rescue people like us. We're thankful for the incarnation. We're thankful that you have come, stooped low, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. We're thankful for this glory, this crucified glory, as it were, of our Savior. And we're thankful that you have caused us to see by your Spirit this glory and to put our faith and trust in him. So God, I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would edify the saints and that you would save souls today. In Jesus' name, amen.